guys. Welcome back to Talking With TK. I'm your host, Tristan Cannell, episode 70 of the podcast, and my special guest today is none other than AFL icon, Wayne Swass. Swassie is, for me, you know, he played at the Sydney Swans for a number of years, as well as an absolutely stellar career at North Melbourne as well, but it's quite an interesting tale because there's a lot of things that we just didn't know that uh, Wayne was going through during his career. So, Today's episode, it's a little bit of a mix between him sharing some of his struggles and his triumph, but today Wayne is doing some amazing work in the mental health sort of space. He's an advocate. He's got his own company, Pucker Up, which is he's using his own personal struggles and battles and using that to really just push some important conversations, as he puts it, back into the community. So it's a, it's a great episode where, like I said, he's very open and honest. I really loved the fact that he can show his vulnerability and that just produces a bit of a connection and also some great stories. So I'm sure that you're going to get plenty out of it. So if you're struggling yourself or maybe you know someone in your own family or friends that might be struggling, probably the best thing to do is to share the episode with them. I think they will get heaps out of it. And that's what it's all about, sharing great stories and great sort of information that we can all share with one another. So please, please share it with someone, especially, well, I guess you don't even have to be struggling at the moment. It might be something that the past or something that you never know might happen in the future, but there is some resources out there and some special organizations doing some awesome things around mental health. Guys, just a big thank you for everyone tuning in. I really appreciate all the messages of support and all the, the new subscriptions Subscriber rates has gone through the roof in the past couple of months, so it's a big thank you to you. I'm not sure how you found out about the podcast, whether it's through social media or word of mouth, but yeah, if you can continue to spread the word and help me support and grow it, I want to continue to bring on awesome guests like Wayne. So if you haven't yet, please subscribe via iTunes. It's on Stitcher, Overcast, or anywhere you can get your i sorry your podcasts. Or I've also got it all online. It's www talkingwithtk.com if you want to check out the show notes episode guides there's a player for every single episode so you'll never miss a thing there's also a newsletter on there so pop on there i'll send you out when episodes come out first so you'll be the first to know if you want to connect with me send me an email tristan at talkingwithtk.com or i'm across all the different social medias twitter or facebook please give me a follow tristan at talkingwithtk sorry I should start again. So Twitter and Facebook, I'm at Talking With TK. And Instagram, I'm at Tristan Nell. So please connect and I'll follow you back for sure. And I'd love to see what you guys are doing in your communities as well. All right, guys, let's get straight to it. I introduce Wayne Swass. Wayne is a former AFL player for the North Melbourne Kangaroos and also the Sydney Swans. As a leading mental health advocate, he recently founded a new social enterprise where he is the CEO and founder and also has a hit podcast, and that's all under the banner of Pucker Up. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne Swass. Wayne. Thanks. Thanks, Tristan. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure, mate. Before you came on, you know, obviously chatting about a bit of a challenge coming up. You're riding from the SCG <laughs> to Etihad Stadium in Melbourne. So maybe touch a little bit yeah. about the bike ride and what it's all about. Well, I'm one of these middle-aged men that likes to stay fit and cycling is a sport that keeps me fit. So um, I'm a passionate cyclist 
And, uh, you know, I've done something similar in 2006 where we rode from Sydney to Melbourne. It was a much shorter journey over a longer a longer period. Um, but it's something that, that has always stuck with me that when you use cycling as a vehicle to begin to tackle a really complex issue like suicide and suicide prevention mm. – and you take that message to country places throughout New South Wales and Victoria, which we're doing again, um, it's, a really, it's a really important initiative. So we're riding eight days, 1,433 kilometres, Melbourne to Sydney, but it's Wollongong, Goulburn, Canberra, Wagga, Albury, uh, Shepparton, Ballarat before we get back to Melbourne. Um, country people don't have the same number of resources or professional options available to them. Yep. So it's really important that we take that conversation to country and regional towns. They deserve to be part of this conversation as much as uh, their city folk uh, friends. So the bike ride, I want people to hopefully understand that the bike ride is simply the vehicle that allows us to begin to create conversations around suicide prevention because it is a significant issue that yep. affects every community and every family unit across the country, either directly or indirectly. And it's, it's something that I believe in passionately. So I really want to begin to create a national conversation around suicide prevention. We just have to ride 1,433 k's over eight days. It sounds easy, but I'm sure it'll be hard. <laughs> What's the actual preparation, both mentally and physically, like to get yourself ready for an event like this, Wayne? Well, we've got 27 riders, uh, all ages, all backgrounds, all experience and all cycling ability. But from my own personal point of view, I've been, I've been training – uh, uh, rigorously for probably the last four months. So, um, you know, to give people an idea, we're at the moment we're averaging about 250, 300Ks a week, but during Christmas where I had four weeks off, I was riding 500, 600, 650Ks a week. So there's been a lot of effort put into it. Um, and it's not just the bike ride. So we'll do a daily broadcast in each of the towns that we stop in. We're also going to deliver community forums around mental health and emotional well-being. So there's a lot involved in this outside of just riding a bike, but I, I believe in the value of it, and it's something that I'm really excited about. Yeah. Given that you, you know, where you came from, the AFL, and the number of people that you've brought together for this as a team environment, is that something you're looking forward to, getting back into that kind of team environment and working towards a common goal? Uh, well, well uh, I just like riding bikes, Um but, you know, I've got a team. I've got multiple teams. So, you know, a, a, a team at home is my family, my wife and three kids. I've got a team at work. So I've got people that I rely on and they rely on me in order for Pucker Up to grow and, and, and achieve its vision, which is to stamp out suicide. Mm-hmm. The bike ride's another team, but we've I've got teams everywhere. So I've been fortunate in the sense that, um, you know, I've managed to maintain that team environment through most of the things that I've done. Um, but I know firsthand, uh, we had a training ride on the weekend, Tristan, and I know some people have never been exposed to an AFL environment or AFL athletes. Yeah. I've got uh, I've got three other, uh, four other AFL athletes on the ride: Scott Cummings, uh, Justin Kajitsky, Paul Lucuria, and Danny Frawley. The fact that these guys are involved in the ride is a great thrill for other people that have never had any exposure to former AFL players. So, whilst I'm fortunate that I've been in that environment, I think it's great that we're exposing and giving other people that have never been in that environment the opportunity to spend nine days with guys that have been reasonably successful in their chosen careers. Hmm. What's 
you know, you spoke about the importance of conversation, but, you know, I followed you for a while and I know that for your own personal story, conversation hasn't been the easiest thing for you, especially back in the 90s and 2000s. How did you actually yeah. get to a stage where you did get comfortable just as you're speaking now? I had to learn the skills. I mean, I, and I say this all the time. Um, I talk about the journey uh, a lot all over the country, and, and the thing that I talk about a lot is that as an athlete, I had I had two toolboxes. I think everybody has two toolboxes, yep. and we have a toolbox that is hopefully eventually full of skills that allow us to do our job, whether that be as an AFL football player, a business owner, somebody who's like yourself creating content via a podcast. You need a certain set of skills that you develop confidence that you you eventually learn and you grow which allows you to cope in a stressful situation so i had a toolbox that allowed me to cope as an afl football player Mm. but that only allowed me to cope in one area and that was on a football field which is a really incredibly stressful environment situation but i had another toolbox and that's that was my emotional intelligence toolbox and it was empty i didn't have the skills the knowledge the ability to as a male um, understand emotions, uh, understand the way that I was feeling, the way that I was behaving, the way that I was choosing certain decisions. I had no skill set in order to do or deal with that productively. So six years after being diagnosed with mental health conditions, more out of necessity than a conscious decision, um, I, I, I made a decision when I was playing with the Sydney Swans by that stage, I made a decision to walk off the training track and for the first time in six years ask my doctor for help because I was unwell. I then had to spend four and a half years with an amazing lady psychiatrist in order to understand the conditions that I was dealing with, begin to appreciate how they were negatively impacting my life, but then more importantly, I began to, through a lot of hard work and persistence, Develop the necessary skills that enabled me to be able to uh, express what I was feeling, what I was thinking, and how I was behaving. And slowly but surely, I began to fill that emotional intelligence toolbox. What I do now, Tristan, and my ability to communicate has been a 24-year journey. This hasn't happened overnight. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made a tremendous amount of poor choices. But every single one of those decisions and experiences has prepared me and allowed me to do what I now do. You know, prior to you actually getting the help with a psychiatrist, with those that dark period that you actually went through, what was it that actually got you through that period? It's a great question. Um, I had two people in my life that, that never gave up when I had given up. I mean, from 1993 until... 2000, uh, sorry, 1993 until 1997, I was, I was very suicidal. Um, but thankfully, my wife and my doctor at my previous football club, North Melbourne, um, they were the two people that effectively kept me engaged and made sure, made sure that my life didn't go down a particular path, which would have meant that I wouldn't be doing this interview with you now. So I, had, I was lucky. I had two key people that, that never gave up when, when I thought that the only option I had was to make a permanent decision to a temporary situation. Mm. Yeah, prior to, because you know, I love your post, you know, so authentic when you're up on the stage getting your medal and raising the trophy in the 96 grand final. Do you remember prior to that actual event, the last time that, you know, you were happy in your own self? Yeah, 1993. Yeah. Um, I was diagnosed on the 9th of August, 1993. Um, but when I look back 
for four or five years before then, there would be days or moments or weeks where I'd be overcome with this overwhelming sense of sadness. But again, as a, as a young man, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to understand that that was actually a problem. I just thought that that was normal life, that this is how you normally felt. You'd have good days and you'd have sad days. But I didn't have the intelligence or the skills to recognize that it was a much bigger problem that was just starting to invade my life. Um, and that's not to be critical of, of who I was and what I was back then, but I just didn't have the ability to recognize it. But equally, uh, I was happy. I was, I'd been engaged to my wife, Rachel, for six months. She'd moved down from Melbourne, um, and I was happy. I was really happy with where I was at. I was confident as a sports person. But on the 26th of July, 1993, two weeks before I was diagnosed, my, my life changed. And on that particular night, I was driving home from a, a training session, and um, I was at a set of traffic lights, and I burst out crying, and I, I had no idea why. Um, I was very confused and, and quite scared. And this happened for two weeks until I was diagnosed with clinical depression. And that was the beginning of a, a long journey with mental health conditions. Hey guys, just a quick break in today's episode. Last week, we had a pretty busy week. We had New Zealand Warriors legend, Monty Beetham, and also V8 supercar legend, Craig Lowndes. So if you haven't yet, please check out those episodes. Just for the moment, I wanted to play you just a quick little preview from the episode with Monty and here it is yeah was that a respect thing the fact that you didn't want to play for another NRL team and try to go as far away 100% man yeah. I grew up and all I wanted to do was play for the Warriors I didn't want to play for anyone else at all I didn't even want to go to the Super League I remember over there on, on, on tour in 2002 and Gary uh, Freeman who was the coach at the time said mate would you come play over here I said never and he said to me never say never champ <laughs> and uh, and I was over there you know but I didn't expect uh, to have that um, sort of carry on back here in that time during 2004 2005 where you know I, I became that boy uh, in that situation which had that love hate relationship with uh, some of the fans and, and some of the media yeah. but but that's that's life man uh, you just got to take it on chin um, and it's up to you and your purpose and what's more important to you because all I ever wanted to do was win a premiership for this uh, Warrior side. And I missed out on that because um, I, I had to go overseas. And they were one, it was a wonderful year. I enjoyed my time there. But, you know, it's, it's what you want to do in life and your direction you want to take. So please go back and enjoy that episode as well as the one with Craig and go through the back catalogue. I'm sure that you enjoy it. If it's your first time here, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or anywhere you can get your podcast, or it's all online at www.talkingwithtk.com. You know, back here in Sydney, you know, I know a fair few NRL players, and they're retired now, but, you know, they're only little fellas, so when they were playing coming up in the grades, they actually suffered quite a few, you know, concussions, so brain trauma. When you were coming up through the grades in the AFL, did you ever suffer any of that? Yeah, I had a number of um, I had a number of concussions as a junior football player, um, to the point where I, I, wore, I wore a helmet uh, for a couple of years. I mean, I was I was sixteen playing senior football by that stage in country Victoria. Came to Melbourne, got away with the helmet because I thought it didn't look good. Um, you know, it's something that I've it's something that I've I've, I've thought about. And I'm mindful, and I've asked myself the question, and I can't answer this. Was part of the reason why I, I was eventually diagnosed with depression as a result of the concussions? 
I'm not sure of the answer. It could be a contributing factor. It may not have been a contributing factor. Um, but but I, I think that all elite sports in Australia um, are doing a, are doing a much better job at prioritising the short-term and long-term health of combative sport athletes to make sure that we're not putting the short or long-term uh, health of ourselves in jeopardy. Having said all of that, I can honestly say that there were times where I was concussed that I lied to the doctor in order to get back on the field because I thought that's what I needed to do to show my teammates that I was tough. Okay. Wayne, I just wanted to, I'm really always intrigued about people's backgrounds. Like for me, I've got a Mauritian background. My parents were born in Mauritius. And I know just from reading a few things, I think one of your parents are Maori. Is that, is that correct? Can you tell us yeah, a little bit about, that's about, about your background? Yeah, so I, I, I'm part Maori. My dad's Maori. My mum's Australian. I was born in New Zealand, lived there for three years until mum and dad and my sister and I moved over here to Australia. Um, I married a Kiwi girl. Ninety-five uh, percent of our, ninety percent of our, our extended families are all in New Zealand. I'm a proud Kiwi. Uh, I love the All Blacks. Uh, the Huck is very something very special to me. Um, Australia's been a great place for me to grow up. It really has, and and this is home. But uh, I never lose sight of the fact that a big part of me is, is the Maori culture. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know it as well as I should, but uh, I'm proud of my Maori heritage and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that through my father I've been able to maintain a level of respect and appreciation for the Maori culture and it's something that I cherish. Hmm. The Huck is an absolutely beautiful you know, war dance and it's something that I speak to a, a lot of the boys here about and especially a lot of them that have actually had to perform it before going out on the field of battle. And, you know, they talk about having to be able to control it, especially after, because you're obviously on such a big high. So I just wanted to see if you, maybe you had any experiences, I don't know, maybe prior to playing any sport, of actually having to do the harker and how you actually brought yourself back down. Yeah, I've had to officially do it twice. Um, you know, I've got an 11-year-old son. And it's not uncommon for our lounge room to uh, break out in the hucker with my son and I because he absolutely loves it. He loves it, and I want to embrace that and encourage that. But I was lucky enough, I was involved with uh, an AFL team out of New Zealand for four years called the New Zealand Hawks, which is made up of uh, New Zealand-born boys, uh, and they play against an Australian Institute of Sport junior team. And at the ripe old age of 44, I uh, made my AFL debut for New Zealand at uh, Wellington Stadium against Australia. And um, I had to join my teammates and deliver a hucker. And I've got to say, um, I delivered it with a a face full of tears. It was a very proud moment for me. Um, I was very emotional um, and it meant a lot. The only other time that I've had to do it officially was that uh, I I retired. And um, here in the AFL, we have um, all of our uh, Aboriginal players um, have an Indigenous camp. And I've known one of the uh, most influential Aboriginal players, uh, Michael Long, and I knew him really well. And I was working for Fox uh, Fox Sports at this stage, and I was keen to see if we could do a documentary about the Indigenous players and their culture and their heritage. And I can remember sitting down with Michael, and I said, this is my idea, because what happens is unless you're Aboriginal, you're not allowed to come in and be a part of that that particular camp. And I remember him sitting there saying to me, he said, yeah, bros, uh, I'll let you come in and be a part of the Indigenous camp, but you have to stand up and deliver a haka to our players in order to get their respect. 
I've never been more frightened and more scared of doing something in my life. And I had to deliver a one-man hucker to a room full of 60 men, and they still talk about it to this day. And by the time I finished, I was shaking. Wow. Was it one of those things that because it was such a big challenge, you just broached the occasion? Well, in order for me to gain the respect and, more importantly, have the permission and trust of a lot of these players that I've known and played against, I had to do what was asked of me because if I didn't do the hucker, I wouldn't have got the permission or the trust to be able to be a part of that special that special opportunity. So it wasn't a choice. I had to embrace it, and uh, I, I, I hopefully I, I did it reasonably well. And, you know, I, I was allowed to be a part of something that very few people that aren't Aboriginal get the privilege or the opportunity to be a part of, and, and I was quite proud of that. Yeah, that's, you know, that's a great friendship that you forged. You know, just from the outside looking in, when I used to watch the Swannies play, and even North Melbourne, you seem to be such a popular player in the team in terms of players embracing you and things like that. Given that what you were suffering back then, did you actually find it difficult to be amongst the boys and actually be in that social sort of um, area? I, I, I invested... Uh, I invested most of my energy, Tristan, into lying, hiding and pretending for 12 and a half years before I made a decision to tell my teammates and the broader community what I was living with. I loved my teammates, both at Sydney and North. They were great friends. They were great athletes. They would do anything for me and I would do anything for them. But under no circumstances was I prepared to sacrifice what I thought I'd lose. And what I mean by that, I was convinced for 12 and a half years that I, if I told any teammates or coaches or staff or supporters what I was living with, I would lose the respect, I would lose the friendships, I would lose the relationships, and I would lose the opportunities that my career provided me. So I consciously chose every day for 12 and a half years to sacrifice my health to protect the things that I thought I'd lose. And the irony of all that is this. Once I decided to finally tell everybody what I was living with, all the things that I thought I'd lose, I never lost. So I never gave my friends and my family. I never told my dad for 12 years for the same reasons. I never gave the key people in my life the opportunity to make informed decisions as to how they can support me because I thought that I'd lose them. And that's what really drives me to talk openly and honestly about what I went through because I just don't want people to make the same mistakes because they don't have to. So back back then, did was winning everything or did it mean nothing at all? No, winning was important. Uh, winning was really important. Um, you know, I, I didn't like winning. I hate. I, I liked. I love winning. I hated losing. Um, I can honestly say, hand on heart. I hated the opposition every time I played against them because my desire to beat them and to win was really important. Um, but but I, I wasted so much energy on trying to hide the fact that I was emotionally unwell. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, again, I say a lot of things when I talk about my journey, but I played 282 league games. I achieved just about everything I wanted to achieve as a sports person. But for 184 of those 282 games, I lived with depression, anxiety, and obsessive-compulsive disorder, and no one knew apart from four people, three doctors and my wife. So could my career have been better? I'm not sure. 
could I have enjoyed my career more? Yeah, definitely, because I spent so much time trying to hide the truth. What it actually robbed me of was more energy, um, more enthusiasm to enjoy everything that my career had to offer. And I can't tell you the amount of games that I played where physically I was there, but emotionally I was not. Mm. Wayne, can we talk a little bit about your current wellness, how you actually handle it? And I don't think, I don't know if control is the proper word, but what maybe helps you? I, I manage, I think mental health, uh, am I cured? I'd hope to think that I don't get depressed again. Um, but that's not really important to me anymore, Tristan. What's important is that I maintain my physical and emotional health. I ride a bike because it keeps me fit. I'm lighter than I was now 16, 16 years after I train, after I finished playing AFL football. Um, I, I, have, I have a checklist of things that allow me to identify something which may be problematic. Sleep, I can't tell people enough the value of a good night's sleep. If I don't get good sleep, I get sad. And if I don't get good sleep and I get sad and that persists, I get very anxious. If I'm working too hard, and that's a bad habit of mine, I work too hard. If I, if I spend too much time working, I don't get enough rest. What I tend to do, I'm not a big drinker, but I'll start to have a drink every night. I might talk about a couple of stubbies or a couple of glasses of red wine. Before I know it, I've done that for every day for two months. Alcohol is a depressant. If you're depressed, it's not going to help your situation. So alcohol, lack of exercise, working too much, I'm not getting enough sleep, my stress levels go up, and before or not, I'm really anxious and I'm struggling and I'm agitated. But what I'm able to do is I can identify those things much sooner and I do other things that I never used to do. I talk to my wife all the time, all the time. I talk to my dad if I'm struggling or if I'm anxious. I need to let him know. I talk to my doctor. If my doctor said to me, I think you need to go on some medication, I do that immediately. What I do now is I prioritize my mental health. I'm not prepared to sacrifice it like I once was because it's important. I don't want to feel bad, sad, unhappy for any longer than I need to. And what I've come to learn and appreciate is the responsibility of my mental health is my responsibility. I have a support network. But if I don't own my mental health and I rely on other people, then I'm leaving it to chance and I'm not prepared to do that. Guys, just a quick break in today's episode. We hope you're enjoying the show. Next week on the show, we've got Newcastle Knights legend, Mark Hughes. He's doing some amazing work in the community. Mark himself has faced and he's currently in remission from brain cancer. But he's got an amazing story and he continues to support the community through the Mark Hughes Foundation, which I'm, I urge you to, to have a look at their website and support the cause because they're they're doing some amazing things, raising money and awareness for brain cancer. So it's quite a it's quite a story, and I just wanted to give you a quick preview. And here it is. No, no. So I I got the ball and, and, and gave it to Darren Albert. He went um, he got played the ball. I went down the short side yeah. there, and then Andrew went to dummy half. And I often say to people that I called Joey down the short side, and he come down the short side, and he was dummy in it. And uh, I'm begging him to pass me the ball. I'm on the side and he dummy to me and give it back into Darren Albert. So, and I tell people that Darren Albert didn't buy a beer for 20 years after scoring that try. So if Joey gave that ball to me, there would have been a big saving. It would have been shouts already. I was actually, if you look at the footage closely, I'm actually 
quite devastated in the corner that I didn't get the ball. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so what, what an amazing moment, yeah, just to see Darren Albert cruising. It was like surreal. It was, I remember just looking at it and just running in. I didn't really... I just ran, was running in towards him going, this is hap- like, is this happening, you know? And the euphoria that surrounded that stadium, it, uh, it, it, you see it on TV now and again, and that still gives you shivers, you know? It's just, mm. just an amazing thing to be a part of. Yeah. So please, get ready for next week's episode. It's going to be an absolute bumper one. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show. You can do that via iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you can get your podcasts, or find it all online www.talkingwithtk.com please connect with me on Twitter or Facebook I'm at Talking with TK Instagram I'm at Tristan Nell or please shoot me an email Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com now back to the show what's what's your advice for maybe parents especially new parents with maybe teenagers and things like that because you know when I grew up and you grew up you know we're in a society where we didn't really talk too much about feelings or even that even got brought up, you know, I know that you've got children and I'm sure that your approach to them now is probably different to the way that even your parents approached how you were raised or how I was raised. Can you give us some advice in that mm. area? Yeah, look, it's 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 only my experience and, and I'm learning. I've got twin daughters, 14 and a half, and I've got an 11-year-old boy. I'm far from perfect, but one of the things that I'm consciously trying to be mindful of is giving our kids the opportunity to talk about whatever it is that they want to talk about that might be causing them concern. I think it's far too easy as parents to dismiss something in our child for they're just a teenager. Uh, they, you know, we, we don't... I need to be careful with what I'm saying, but, uh, you know, kids acting out, kids misbehaving, kids not listening to instructions or making poor decisions at school. I think it's too easy to criticise the behaviour. What's harder but more important is what's underlying the behaviour? Why is 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 this child acting out? Why is this child behaving in a way that we don't think is really appropriate? Spending time sitting with the child, giving them the opportunity to talk about what's bothering them without telling them what we think is the problem is really important. And I'll share one real example. I delivered a presentation 12 months ago to a junior football club, and we had about 16 coaches. And at the end of the presentation, I had the two men that were coaching the under-16 boys team. And they asked me a question, and the question was this. What would you do with a 15-year-old kid that's a shit of a kid, he's causing problems, he doesn't listen, he's making everybody else's life difficult? And my response to their question was this, tell me about the boy. And they both looked at each other and then looked at me and said, what do you mean? And the point I was making was, tell me about the boy. Tell me about what's happening at home so I can get an understanding and then give you an informed decision with regards to what I would say. They, the, the first thing that they both said was the boy's dad, six months earlier, was diagnosed with cancer. So... If you put yourself in a 15-year-old adolescent boy's shoes, and we're not, I'm not being critical of the young boy, what 15-year-old boy has the emotional intelligence and the school and the skills to cope with the reality that his dad is sick and the possibility that his dad may not live because of the condition? So the moment 
that the coaches shared that, we shifted it away from don't react to the to, to the behaviour. Understand that here is a 15-year-old boy who's not coping emotionally and who is acting out because he doesn't have the skills to deal with this in a more productive way. And by the end of the conversation, we were talking about how they as coaches and his teammates can rally around this young 15-year-old boy and help him through a really difficult situation. And I think that's a great life lesson. Give our kids the opportunity to talk without marginalising or shutting them down. Great story. Thanks for uh, sharing that with us, man. I think everyone's going to get plenty out of that one. Just talk to me a little bit about transition, Wayne, because you know the passion that you show now for Pucker Up and your public speaking, You know, it's evident. You can see it. In terms of you retiring from football, is this the first time since football that you've found your true identity? That's a really, that's a really good and interesting question. Um, I'll answer it in a few ways. Uh, I've spent most of my life, most of my life up until the last couple of years, where I can honestly say that I've lived a life according to the expectations that others have wanted from me or society expects from me. I'm a male. I'm a male that's meant to behave a certain way. And I talk about this all the time. A man's meant to be strong, loyal, resilient, stoic, hardworking, trustworthy, a protector, a provider. It's not expected to be censored. Man is certainly not meant to cry. I think that messaging is fundamentally flawed. But it's taken me 48 years and a lot of experiences to sit back and start to reflect and question, hang on, are the expectations that society has of me or others place on me, are they right for me? And what I've come to realise is, no, they're not. I'm not being critical of anybody, but I'm, I'm spending a lot of time um, – making sure that I live a life that is authentic to me. I'm strong, loyal, resilient, hardworking. I provide for my family. I'm a protector of my family. But I'm also someone that's not afraid to talk, to show emotion, to be vulnerable, to be caring, loving, empathetic, because they're really important traits, not only for men, but also for women. But unfortunately, in a country like Australia, women are accepted, supported and encouraged to be emotional, to be connected, to talk, to express their feelings, to cry, and they should be. But equally, on the other hand, a lot of men are judged, criticised or labelled because they show emotion, because they're sensitive, because they have the audacity to cry. One of the reasons, Tristan, why I fundamentally believe that we've got to change the messaging for men in particular is of the seven suicides every day in Australia, six of them are men. That's telling me something, that we've got to change the way that we encourage men and boys to be all of the things that are the traditional traits of males, but we've got to empower and support men to be connected emotionally. Absolutely fantastic way to finish, I think. Wayne, before we let you go, because I know you've got a bit of a prezzo on in a second, we'll give a few contact details of how they can support the right ahead. Obviously, www.puckerup.com, which you also find on iTunes. You can listen to Wayne's awesome podcast. On Instagram, he's Wayne Swass. Now, the suicide prevention bike ride is on between the 16th and 23rd of March. Now, Wayne, what's the best way yep. for people to contribute to that, bud? Well, the thing that I'd really encourage people that are listening to your podcast, Tristan, is um, the only thing I ask anybody is I would ask anybody who listens to this to join our Facebook community, P-U-K-A-U-P. 
um, because it's it's a, it's a community that we're developing, which is a safe and supportive place where people can join and belong, listen, watch and learn about a whole host of different things when it comes to mental health and emotional well-being. Mental health conditions don't discriminate. And in a very judgmental, mental, uh, critical world that we live in via social media, our platform is a really safe environment that people can join, be a part of the conversation, and more importantly, learn about some of the things that help people identify mental health conditions in themselves, which is a great outcome, or equally, you can learn so many different things that then put you in a position that you can help somebody that you care about who may go through these conditions. Because the one thing I can I can promise everyone, Tristan, is this. If we haven't already and we aren't right now, then we will come into contact with someone that we love that will deal with a mental health condition at some stage in life. And our ability to support them will be either life-changing or in my case, life-saving, and I think that's absolutely worth being a part of. Absolutely. Just one question before you do go, and that just is in regards to supporting someone. In terms of maybe an effective way, because I'm, I'm sure that people are going to kind of get it differently. Just for example, if you came up to me and I didn't know you yet, and or even if I did know you, and you said I'm having an issue, you know, I might never have ever had anyone come up to me with that problem before. Just in your own experience, what, what advice would you have for helping someone deal with it on the other foot? That's yeah, a question I get asked a lot. I think the number one thing that we can all do is listen and listen more and then listen more. If Unless you're qualified, it's very hard to be able to provide – well, it's impossible. You can't provide the professional support. People that are living with these conditions need to and must go and get the professional support in order to begin to deal with the issues that they've got in their lives. But as a support person, the most important thing that we can do is give someone the opportunity just to talk. Sit with them, allow them to talk. Our default position as human beings is to either find a solution, tell the person what to do, or in worse situations, criticise them for it. We can't criticise or judge or label someone living with these conditions because they're doing an incredibly good job themselves. When you're living with mental health conditions, you have a very negative outlook on the world and, and worse, on yourself. So if someone comes up to an individual and wants to talk about something, you're not expected to have the answer. Just create an environment that is safe and supportive and allow that person to talk. The next thing that I would suggest is if you're legitimately concerned about that person's welfare, contact your GP or contact any number of the service providers that are around Australia and talk to a counsellor. Find out some strategies that you can help support that person and get them in to see a professional. The last thing that I'd say, um, and I think that we're shifting this conversation around the country, Tristan, and that is mental health conditions are legitimate medical conditions. Mm. People that live with these conditions don't look for them. They're not done for attention. So we've got to remove this um, uneducated attitude and perceptions that mental illnesses aren't real. They are very real, and they sadly claim the lives of so many people 
And to give that perspective, 2,866 people sadly ended their lives in 2016. That's a lot of people. So stigma and discrimination needs to be demolished and destroyed as soon as possible because it's a preventative barrier stopping people getting help. And at its very worst, it potentially is a contributing factor to somebody who may be thinking about ending their life. And I think every life, irrespective of the medical condition they're dealing with, is absolutely priceless and valuable. Well, Wayne, I I really appreciate all the different advice and stories that you've come to today. I'm sure that everyone at home listening is going to get absolutely awesome advice from you. And, uh, you know, as you've mentioned, the Facebook page, everyone gets supporting Wayne. Definitely check out his site at puckerup.com. And, Wayne, hopefully we'll get to do this again because it was a great chat and I really appreciate your time. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity to come on and talk, Tristan, and keep up the good work. You're doing some amazing things. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode with Swassie. Please support the cause. Of course, the suicide prevention bike ride will be from the 16th to the 23rd of March. Please find more details at www.puckerup.com or give him a follow on his Instagram. He's very active at Wayne Swass. Plenty of inspiration and plenty of details on how you can get involved. All right, guys, really enjoyed bringing you this episode. As mentioned, next week on the show, Newcastle Knights legend, Mark Hughes. I've had a pretty busy couple of weeks just recording plenty of episodes, so I think you'll definitely enjoy some of the ones coming up. If you're a Leaguey fan, Robbie Paul, Mark Coyne, and Joe Williams have all recorded. International flavor, we've got the Team USA and the most recognizable lacrosse player in the world, Paul Rabel, coming on the show. Six times Mr. Olympia, Dorian Yates. Socceroos captain, Milay Yedinak, and also the son of the legend, Costa Zoo, making his own path in the boxing world. His name is Tim Zoo, if you're not aware. He's 7-0, he's an Aussie, and he's doing some great things. So please look him up. All right, guys, please get involved. If you want to connect with me, Twitter or Facebook, I'm at Talking With TK. Instagram, Tristan Nell, or send through any guest requests or show suggestions through to my email, tristan at talkingwithtk.com. All right, guys, really enjoyed bringing that one to you. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking With TK.